The sovereign servant. The sovereign servant. That's what Jesus can be called. The sovereign servant. How was he lifted up? And then for that message, for the message today, I want you to turn to John 19. We'll be beginning in 16 part B and going through the passage that Carlton read earlier to the end of the chapter with his burial in verse 42. From the beginning of the story of the covenant of redemption, the, the story has been unchanged. The covenant clearly states that there is required for the sin of mankind a sacrifice that's unchanged. And from the very beginning, we see it in the Scriptures, after the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who represented us in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's fictitious for us to level the charge that had I been in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned like Adam did. I would have chosen better than he did. Yeah, right. You see, when he chose, you chose. When he chose, I chose. What did we choose? We chose rebellion. We chose idolatry. We chose self-worship. We chose self Exaltation. We chose our way, not God's way. From the very beginning, we all chose in Adam to rebel against God. And at that sin, the curse of the covenant fell on mankind. Death was required. Death was required. And death was carried out. Satan taunted. He taunted. He said, did he really tell you? That if you ate from this tree, you would die. I mean, did he really say that? I mean, what he really means, be careful about that statement, what he really means. What he really means is you will be a God like him. He doesn't want you to have what he has. He's a mean God. He's withholding from you. That's what he means. You're not going to die. And Eve ate, and she turned to Adam. And Adam, who was not deceived, he knew full well what he would do, ate anyway. He chose. And in his choice, we chose. And the death sentence was carried out in that very moment. The Bible records for us that Adam and Eve, from that moment, were separated from God. They had enjoyed the sweetest of communion. In the garden. The sweetest time of devotion. They had walked with Him in the cool of the day. They had talked with Him as a man talks to a friend. No more. You see, He had to die. And He did. He died. He died spiritually at the moment that He chose rebellion against God. The communion that Adam enjoyed with God was broken. The fellowship was destroyed. Hope was lost. Sin corrupted every level of man's existence. He was corrupt in his mind. He was corrupt in his emotion. He was corrupt in his physical nature. He was corrupt in his spirit. He corrupted in every way in his rebellion. All hope was gone. There was nothing left. And you see that, don't you, at their running in fear from God and hiding. 
they knew fundamentally the relationship with God Almighty had changed. And they had no hope of it ever being restored. They had only heard the thundering of the covenant. In the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And they hid. And they cowered. And yet we find God coming to them. He came to them. Have you ever stopped to contemplate it? They had just chosen rebellion against the high king of heaven. And yet he came to them. He didn't require them to come back to him. He sought them when they were lost. And he found them. He didn't wait on them to say, oh, we messed up. We got to make it right. He went to make it right. And he found Adam and Eve cowered there in the corner of the garden, fallen in every way. And after his exchange and confirming their guilt, in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, we read the curse which God pronounced against Satan, against the woman and against the man and against all of creation in the form of that serpent. All of creation and the fact that the thorns would come up from the creation now as he tilled the ground. All things had changed fundamentally. The world had fallen. What had been good had now been destroyed with this choice. And so, God, in that curse, (laughs) gave a promise that only God could fulfill. And this is the promise. Listen to the words of God. Because you have done this, talking to the serpent, cursed you are above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, switching gears we hear, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Enmity between your seed and her seed. He, this is the promise, He shall crush your head and your seed shall, or you shall, bruise His heel. You say, that's a strange place to start on Easter morning, Carlton. Genesis 3.15. I mean, those of you visiting with us today, you're not caught off aware by that. Those who are members here just took a deep breath and thought, oh, goodness, the roast will scald. The family will go home. We've started in Genesis 3. It's a long way to the cross. And because you don't want to listen to me that long, I'll hit the high points. Aren't you glad? Not only did he pronounce a curse and make a promise, but he sealed it. The Bible tells us that he then took an innocent animal. I don't know how he did it. I wasn't there. But may I tell you, it was gruesome 
It was horrifying. It was shocking. I imagine that Adam wanted to throw up when God took that innocent animal and killed it. And then he skint it. And then he clothed them. And in that moment, he sealed the promise that he made to all of mankind. You have lost it all. My sacrifice will pay it all. You will get it all. You lost it all. I will do it all. You will get it all. Now, from that point forward, we know that's what they believed. Noah came off of the ark, and what's the first thing he did? Piled up rocks and made an offering unto God. Abram, when he received the promise of God, understood it must be sealed, and sealed it with the circumcision of their flesh. But in Genesis 22, he took... Isaac, his only begotten son, his only son of promise, and he led him up a hill. And on the way, Isaac, probably being 12 or 13, looks around, having seen these sacrifices from his birth, looks around and says, Father, yes, son, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, you've got the knife for slaughter. I'm toting the wood. We got the fire. There's not a lamb. Where's the lamb? Well, God had told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And yet it's monumental that you know what Abraham said. What did he say? My son, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews tells us he said that in faith, knowing that when he killed his son, as God had commanded, God would raise him from the dead. Abraham didn't go with some fanciful dream that there would be a ram caught in a bramble bush. He went there to kill his boy. Why? Because God required blood. He required a sacrifice. And the promise was in this son of Isaac, of his old age. The promise of the ages was going to be passed down through this lineage. And God wanted that son not to be his place of refuge. He said, kill that boy on the altar. Give him to me. And Abraham in faith, said, God will provide a sacrifice, son. They went there. He laid him on the wood and lifted the tool, the knife. And at that moment, God stepped in and stopped Abraham. The angel stopped him and said, Abraham, God has provided. He has seen your faith and he has accepted it and he has provided for himself a sacrifice In those bushes, take it and now for sacrifice. God did not require Abraham to give his only son. 
Because God had made a promise that only God could fulfill. Isaac could not fulfill the promise. He carried the promise, but he could not fulfill the promise. And so, from there forward, under the Mosaic Law, under the reign of David, all the way to Jesus' day, the people made sacrifice. One other high point in the redemptive theme of the Bible we see in Exodus 12. When God brings the people out of Israel, He does it at the cost of the firstborn of every house of Egypt. It was not cheap. Their deliverance cost millions of people their children. And God passed over them. Why did He pass over His people? Because they marked their doorpost with the blood of an innocent, spotless, year-old, without deformity lamb. And they, in doing that, showed faith in God and the promise of God. And by doing that, God passed over their house. That Passover celebration continued for thousands of years. Passed down. Generation to generation that they may never forget, God requires blood for sin. And then we arrive at our text this morning. There's no greater type of the promised sacrifice than the story which Moses recorded for us in Genesis 22. There's no greater type of that promised sacrifice than the one in Exodus 12 when the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the blood was raked over the household. The gospel is simple. God requires death because of sin and rebellion. In the days of the Old Covenant, he slaught, the slaughter of millions and millions of sheep rolled the sin forward, as Dave said, in waiting for the promised Lamb of God. The gospel's simple, yet the message is profound. We in Adam lost it all. God in Christ did it all. And we in Christ get it all. That's the good news that the people had waited thousands of years to hear. And I pray that you've heard it. If you have not, then I pray today you will hear this good news. This text comes to us very straightforward. And yet there is a theme I see weaving in again with this sovereign king, this sovereign servant, Jesus Christ. How was the king lifted up, I said in the subtext. And that's the theme I see in this passage, in this narrative text. How was Christ, how was the king lifted up? Well, we'll see today. First of all, we see in verse 16 through 22, the sovereign servant was hoisted up so that the Jew and Gentile might come to him. If we look at this passage, it says... So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side. John doesn't go off in explaining about those who are hanging next to Jesus. The other gospel writers do that. 
in great detail. John keeps us on the main point. The king is being lifted up. He doesn't want us to get distracted with details about Simon of Cyrene. Though they are important, others will give them to you, John's saying. I don't want you to get distracted about thieves hanging next to him. That's important, but others will give you that detail. I want you to see how your king was lifted up so that you might know how you come to him. It's a beautiful picture if you look at it. It's a gruesome picture if you look at it. Crucifixion. I won't go into the, all of the detail of crucifixion. Most of you have heard it. Many, many thousands of men and women, men especially, have suffered this fate of crucifixion. Christ is not unlike them in the sense that He died suffering in one of the most horrific deaths physically that you could face. I told my children last night, I explained it to them in grave detail, their faces, their little faces were covered with shock. And the most shocking thing is, is that you didn't die on the crucifixion stick from nails. You didn't die because, usually, because you bled. You did that. You died by writhing, straining to pull air into your lungs. Until you could no longer push yourself up and down to inhale and exhale. If you took too long, they broke your legs so that you could push no longer. It was a gruesome way to die. It was a public way to die. It was a shameful way to die. The Old Testament has said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Romans had perfected the art of public discipline, humiliation. And our Savior suffered that way, hanging before His peers, naked for all the world to see. And John wants us to focus on it. He wants us to see it. How do I know he's trying to focus us on it? Well, look at what he does in great detail. In verse 19, he says, Pilate wrote over him an inscription that read, Jesus of Nazareth, what? The king of the Jews. I want you, John is saying, to see that your king was lifted up. And the Jews, their leaders came and said, don't write that over there. Right? He said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate's response is so crucial to our understanding. What I have written, I have written. In this, Pilate believes it. Pilate believes him to be a king. I, I, I really, I know, it might challenge you, I really believe it. He believed him to be a king. He had tried him. He had found no fault in him. He had seen him face to face. He had tried his best to let him go. And when he crucified him, he crucified him as a king. Pilate saw him that way. I think it's the way he maneuvered around the problems in his mind because he said he's in, he's in rebellion to Caesar. I have no choice. He is a king. He must be put up on a cross for insurrection and rebellion. I believe he believed it. And I believe that you and I better believe it. That our king was hung on a cross. He was lifted up. That word, does it bother you? And they put him on a cross and lifted him up. 
when you study that word out, you see that that word is most commonly used for enthronement. What is John doing? Is he saying that our king was enthroned on a cross? Well, I think the evidence is internal. John 3, verse 15. Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, said, As the serpent was lifted up in the days of Moses, the Son of Man, I must be lifted up. Is that the only time? No. John records for us, and by the way, he's the only one who records for us that event. He's the only one who records for us the event in John 12. When Jesus is quoted as saying, in response to them trying to kill him, listen to what he says. The voice, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, that promised seed was lifted up. He's lifted up. He was enthroned on a cross for you and for me. And John is driving that point home in his narrative. He doesn't want you to get distracted. He wants you to see it clearly. Secondly, the sovereign servant is humiliated in his death. Look at verse 23. The soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his garments. He's naked. He's naked. He's hanging in shame. And they divided them into four parts. And one part for each soldier. And then they had his tunic. But the tunic was without a seam. It was very expensive. It was the part that hung next to his body. So it was covered in blood. We don't want to break that. It's an expensive piece of covering. It's an expensive garment. You and I couldn't buy that on the soldier's pay. All right? We'll cast lots. And this was done, John says, in fulfillment of the Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. He was humiliated. Not only is he dying, he's dying a public death on a cross. Not only is he dying on a cross, but he's not even afforded any covering. He's naked for the world to see. Not only is he hanging naked, but at his feet as he dies, these men are casting lots for his clothes. He's not even dead yet. And they're trying to take whatever little he had. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. We're left to believe that what Jesus owned in his, was in His possession. That's what He owned in this world. And now all that He owned in this world is being divided up among Roman soldiers at His feet as He hangs on a cross. He was humiliated. They didn't even afford Him the the the. the decency of dying and then taking his things. But as he looks down from the cross, dying for what? For the sin of his people. 
they go to the shameful practice of stealing his clothes. I mean, his mother's there. Why didn't they just give his stuff to his mother? If they wanted to show respect, they would have. His followers are there. We know John was there. He was bore witness of it. Why didn't they give it to John and say, Look, I know you all hung out with this dude. Take his stuff. We don't want it. They wanted to shame him. He was enthroned on that cross. He was lifted up. And they were shaming. But that's not all John wants us to see in his narrative. We go to the third thing that John wants us to see, all pointing to Jesus, the sovereign servant. This sovereign servant, Jesus, finished the work of atonement. And this is where we'll spend the end of the sermon. This is where we will end our sermon. We, we will not get to the resurrection, although I'll mention it. But I want you to see this. I don't want to run through it just to finish. All that was necessary for our atonement, our at one our peace with God, our acceptance into God's family, all that was necessary, He finished on the cross. And so we look at the text, and I want to make a couple of notes here. First of all, look at how He cares for His mother. Here He is dying. And he looks down at her and he says, woman, now don't take that as some gruff statement. That's a respectful and kind statement. It also shows that he, I think, is transitioning her mind to the fact that I'm no longer your son. Only I'm your king. Woman, behold your son. He points her, he directs her to John who's standing there. And he says to that disciple, Behold your mother. What care he had. What concern he had. Even in his death. That everything be done appropriately. That everything be done right. That everything be done justly. That his mother be cared for in his death. What a beautiful picture of his love. Of his mercy. Of his goodness. And then. We're left in 28 with his final words, 28 and following, his final words. And and I want to hang out here for a minute. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, there are many that he was fulfilling, I thirst. Now, a jar full of sour wine was then lifted up up to him on on a sponge of a hyssop branch, and he held it in his mouth. And then he says, it is finished. I thirst. It's not the first time we're going to see this thing. I thirst. Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39 said, He who is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink from the rivers of living water. And John says in commentary of that statement of Jesus, he said this about the giving of the Holy Spirit, that the living water would flow from his side. See, what I see John doing is a double intention. Not only is he fulfilling the Scriptures of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, but he's fulfilling his own words. 
What do I mean? I mean He became thirsty for you. I don't think we understand the gravity of that. This is the one who spread out the oceans. This is the one who made the rivers. This is the one who was capable of feeding five plus thousand with a few loaves and a couple of fish. This is the one who, when the woman at the well was thirsty, he said he would give her living water, which she would never thirst again once she drank. He is the eternal wellspring of God. And yet he says, I thirst. I thirst. The gravity of that very statement is this. He did that for you. He did that for me. In making provision for you to drink from Him, the fountain of living water, He became thirsty. He was exhausted. He was stretched to the physical limits. His mouth, I think, had become stuck and glued as it tends to do when you're parched. Why do I think that? They couldn't understand Him really. He cried out and they were struggling. They were telling him, what did he say? He was, was he calling for Elijah? Maybe he was calling by his father. I don't, I don't know what he was talking about. Get him something to put on his lips. That's what the other writers tell us. But John just says, he said, I thirst. Why? Because in making a way for us to be fulfilled, he emptied himself fully. He emptied himself. He paid the price. He suffered the reproach of the cross and of thirst, and of exposure. And then he says, it's finished. What does he mean by it is finished? Well, I think at least he means this. He suffered and died emotionally for us. Some of you struggle from emotional disorder. It's a real deal. Mental struggles. Jesus suffered mentally for you. His mental anguish was at a level that we know nothing of as he contemplated his separation from his Father. There is no one in this room or ever living in history who understands the separation that he felt in that moment. And mentally the anguish it must have caused. And so when you find yourself saying, do I really have a high priest who understands me? I'm praying and he is not answering. I'm mentally battling and there seems to be no relief. I tell you, yes. He thirsted mentally for you so that you might have his wellspring of life. He not only suffered mentally, And emotionally, but he suffered spiritually. Spiritually, he suffered. We, again, don't understand this. We are playing with ourselves if we think we understand this. The one who was seated with God in the heavenly places from before time began, now on the cross, has lost his fellowship with the Father. Is cut off because of sin. Not because of his sin, but because of the sin of his people. And now the heavens are as a brass. Darkness covers him. From the light of the Shekinah glory 
to John leaving him on the cross. In darkness. Complete darkness. Why? To show us the spiritual death which he died for us. When he said it is finished, notice the note John put in there. In saying this, he offered up his what? Spirit. Before he died physically, Jesus Christ offered his spirit as a sacrifice to the Father. Gave it to him. Entrusted it into his hands. Knowing that in the Father's hands he would be accepted. In the Father's hands he would be protected. In the Father's hands his spirit would find rest from his struggle. He died emotionally, mentally. He died for us and completed the work of spiritual death. He died physically. Oh, don't take from this that I think he didn't die physically. He died physically. He did not just pass out for some short time and was revived back to life. He died. He literally died physically. We know that as we see in the next passage that they pierced him. They came to him, and notice John in 34, and the detail he goes into. When they had broken the legs of those around him, they came to him, and then they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, there's a physical explanation for that. There's a scientific medical explanation for that, but I don't think John knew the scientific and physical evidence, the medical evidence. I don't think he understood that at his day. We do it our day. It's well and good, but it's not John's point. Look what he says. He saw it was he, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That is a great Length to go to to prove his point, to say, I'm telling you the truth. And look what he follows that with, that you also may believe, for these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture, which says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And he was dead. This is the proof that he died physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He died in every way. But why to go to this detail, John, about water flowing from his side and blood flowing from his side? Why? What is the significance? From this portrait, we see Jesus, who died on our behalf. From his side flowing water. Living water is what's being represented. John is saying what he said is coming true. John is saying he promised he would die. And when he died, the Spirit would come. And when the Spirit came, it would be like a water flowing from his side. I saw it with my own eyes. The physical occurrence. And I experienced it at Pentecost when the Spirit fell. He has sent the Spirit to us. He has fulfilled His Word. He's kept His promise. Everything is finished. It is complete. We are in Him. I believe that's what John is saying. 
And so, how do we close a sermon about a narrative text that I introduced with Genesis 3? How do we close a text like that? How do we close a sermon like this? He's buried like a king. I mean, look at him, the great expense they went to. Nicodemus shows back up, by the way. I believe, as a believer, he and Joseph of Arimathea took their stand with Jesus after his death. They wouldn't stand in his life, but they stood in his death. And they buried this man. They did it as a king would be buried. The great expense which they went to to cover him with oil and with aloe, I think proves that they viewed him to be a king. But what does that really have to do with Genesis 3, verse 15? What is that? What's the point? It's an interesting story. What's the point? This is the point. We lost it all. When did we lose it all? When we were born and we chose to sin? No. The Bible says in Psalm 51 that you and I were born in sin. When did we lose it all then, Carlton? In the garden. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam died spiritually, I died spiritually. You died spiritually. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We all were that way. Dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. From the garden forward, we all had lost everything. And the curse stood. And for centuries and for millennia, Satan laughed. He scoffed. He mocked the God of heaven. He does it with Job. Come on, God. You don't want to bring Job in front of me. Take all his stuff. He'll curse you. He's mocking God. He not only did it with Job, he did it with all men everywhere. You made this promise in the garden, this grandiose promise about crushing the head of Satan. You haven't done it. I still come in with the sons of God to bring charges against your people. What will you do with me, the son that has gone astray? What will you do with me? This mocking continued. And God in his patience waited. Lambs died by the millions and Satan mocked it. That beautiful creation, that innocent lamb, Look at the millions you've wasted, Yahweh. Who has been delivered? Who has been set free from the curse? They're all in their sin. You can't pass over. You're just. You've got to pay for it. You can't pay for a human with a lamb. Come on, God. He mocked. He cursed. He rebelled. God waited patiently. Millions of lambs died. Millions and millions and millions to the slaughter. And then the angels announced the birth of Christ. And Satan began to tremble. How do I know? Because he incited Herod the Great. Oh, you, don't, you need to kill him. And so all the babies two and under died. But God spared his son. 
How do I know that he began to quake and tremble at the thought of Jesus? Well, because at his baptism, he went, Jesus went into the wilderness. And who was there? Satan himself saying, oh, aren't you hungry? Turn these bread. Turn these stone into bread. Cast yourself from the temple mount. God said he wouldn't let your foot dash the stone. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything you can see. Satan was rebuffed by Christ on every point of the charges. He was perfect and innocent. Satan is scrambling at this point. Scrambling. I've got to turn them. And so he incites the leaders of the Jews. Y'all lose your power. He's gaining the whole world. And Caiaphas says, isn't it better for one to die than for a whole nation to die? And from that moment they plotted. They planned, they contrived a trial to have him crucified. And Satan mocked, and Satan laughed, and Satan cursed. And Jesus was silent as a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth to defend himself. He received the lashes of the whip. He sat under the oppression of the Romans. He was carried and lifted up. And in that moment, in the moment of his greatest trial, in the moment of his separation from his father, he tasted what Adam tasted in the garden. He tasted what Adam tasted when he rebelled against God. He bore our curse. And he died. I envision at the foot of the cross the Pharisees wagging their tongues incited still by this spirit of demons to reject the Messiah. And then I envision them sitting in comfort that he's dead. And Friday there was no answer. Silence. Saturday only mourning, only sadness, only defeat. But on the third day, just as God had promised, the seed of Eve came from the grave. The seed of Eve, the son, the second Adam, rose from that grave. And that nail-pierced foot crushed the head of the rebel Satan. Crushed it. Defeated him. It is said that he was chained like a dog on the end of a leash. He is chained waiting the day of destruction. Oh, he's got a lot of bark He's got a ferocious roar. But the sin and law which he ruled over mankind with is now defeated and fulfilled. And we are free. Why? Because we lost it all. Christ did it all. He did what Adam could not do. And so in him we get it all. The promise in the covenant in the garden was 
If you sin, you will die. But if you obey, you will live. Jesus did what Adam couldn't do. He obeyed. He suffered the death that Adam had to suffer. And he was pronounced victorious over sin, death, and Satan. Rising from the dead. No longer is Satan mocking God. His fate is sealed. No longer do is he allowed to go into the court of God and bring charges against God's elect because those charges have no standing, because those in Christ are no longer condemned. God doesn't even hear the charge any longer. So where do I put my hope this Easter morning? Where do I put my hope? I don't put my hope in my effort to keep the law. I don't put my hope in my goodness. I don't put my hope in in my family. I don't put my hope in my genetics. I don't put my hope in that God will just save everybody and just pass over sin and forget it all. Where do I put my hope? What I'm asking, what I'm imploring, what I'm calling, what John is calling for you to do is put your hope in the King who was lifted up. Because when He was lifted up from the earth, He would draw all men to Himself, all nations to Himself. And so I'm left to think... What did John think about this? And the end of the story is in his revelation. The end of the Easter story is in the revelation. When John says, there was no one in heaven worthy to take the scroll. There was no one in heaven who could stand on behalf of God's elect. There was no one And he began to weep. And the angel said, don't weep. Look. And looking up, he saw a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I'm not left at Easter in the gospel of John only. I'm to go to the Revelation and see the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I'm to go to the Revelation and see that new Jerusalem, that Jesus who was crucified, now enthroned. I'm to go there and see That God has won the victory. He has set us free. And now we are free indeed. The hope of Easter is in the cross. The hope of Easter is in the tomb. The hope of Easter is the fact that He stands, living and breathing, stands before His Father for you and for me. You say, I I don't, I've never believe that. I've never seen it. He's lifted up for you. Come. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. Eat the bread which you cannot buy with money. Drink from the fountain of living water this morning. Come to Him who is lifted up and who is drawing you to Himself. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, As we...